So Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he laboured till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My, da my God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives, 
and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in the, all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree, a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thanks, Hannah. Youth Church, that's your cue to head out. Uh, while you're heading out, let me introduce myself again. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Walgate Evangelical Church. Lovely to have you along. We are in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're going to be in that passage. If you don't have a Bible handy, go and grab one from the back. And like I say to every week, if you don't even own a Bible, could you please write your name in the one that you take from the back? And it's yours. Uh, how about we pray? And then we'll get cracking into it. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we do. We thank you for your word. We thank you for it uh, each week. And we ask now that by your spirit, you would help us not just to understand it, but more importantly, be transformed by it, that we might honour you above all else, regardless of the cost. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, if you are new or, you, or you've missed a couple of weeks, let me give you a quick little rundown of the structure of Daniel so far. Basically, what we see very interestingly in the book of Daniel is a bit like what I want to say, like a, uh, an arrow structure. Technically speaking, it's called a bit of a chiasm. What that means is, if you have a look at the screen up here, chapter 1 sort of sets a bit of a historical context, a bit of a background. Really, the main theme comes out straight away. God's sovereign control over all things. And then we get these sort of pairs of chapters going forward from there. You get this pairing in chapter 2 and 7. Pairs of dreams or visions. One for Nebuchadnezzar, seven for Daniel. It's about four empires. Not eight, four. And then three to six, we get this other pair of, of chapters. It's a pair of trials and miraculous deliverances. In chapter three, it was for Radshak and Betty, as Jeff referred to in the other week. Uh, in this chapter, it's Daniel who is miraculously delivered. And then in four and five, we just come from those chapters. Another pairing, you'll notice, a pair of kings. One challenged and humbled, Nebuchadnezzar. One challenged and deposed, King Belshazzar. Now, from there, it really it changes up a little bit. We've got this uh, 8 to 12. In fact, really genuinely from 7 to 12, this apocalyptic genre. We're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, next week. But I want you to see that sort of structure because we're focused in on chapter 6 today and it really is linked to chapter 3 in that there is a direct challenge to those who want to live for God. In chapter 3, it was, bow down to this statue or I'll kill you. <laughs> in chapter 6, it's, if you pray to your God, I'll kill you. And I want to say this is really helpful passages for us to be digging into as 21st century Christians. And I say that because you'll notice, I'm sure, that our world is similarly growing hostile to Christians and Christianity. As I've mentioned in the past couple of weeks, Christianity once heralded as the, uh, as the good of the, you know, the abiding good of the nations, of the Western world, the real crowning glory. No. In fact, it hasn't been that long back since we've, Christians have been tolerated as idiots, but tolerated. Increasingly now, Christians and the Christian gospel is labelled as hateful and horror-filled. Horror I've actually been reading a, a book by a man named Stephen McAlpine. He uh, actually belongs to our FIEC network. It's called Being the Good, cross that out, Being the Bad Guys. Uh, how to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Fantastic read, really helpful. Just finished it this week, actually, timely. Um, 
one of the things that Stephen really points out that I think is helpful for us to see as we reflect on this changing nature of opinions towards Christianity, one of the things he comes at is don't buy into the victim mentality. I think that's a helpful thing to record. Don't buy into the victim mentality. Opposition is growing, folks. Get no, make no mistake about that. But we're still a long way from being marginalised as Christians in Wagga and indeed I want to say even in Australia for that matter. I mean, there are increasing social pressures. There are even some legislations being subtly, maybe not so subtly, levelled against Christians and Christian practices. If you're aware of the Change and Suppression Act that was sort of tabled in Victoria a little while ago, there's a sense in which there's a rightness to the, some of the things they were challenging, um, forced transition, blah, blah. There's some right stuff there, but really, genuinely, that's not what Christians are about. In fact, what's smuggled in there as well as a, a, um, making prayer for people who request it illegal wow that's happening subtly not so subtly but i want to say we're still a long way from that orwellian moment if you'll excuse the phrase if you've ever read who's ever read the book by george orwell called 1984 ever read it cracking good read definitely read it it's one of your favorites isn't it does yeah it's a ripper read it we're a long way still from that Orwellian moment in 1984 where any independent or therefore Christian or, or let alone Christian thought is outlawed. We're a long way from that. We're a long way from that time where at any moment you could be whisked away for re-education along state-sanctioned opinions and beliefs. We're not there yet, but suppose that day comes, folks. Suppose that day comes actually sooner than you can imagine. The question I want you to ask yourself is, if Christianity was outlawed tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let me say that again, because I really want you to feel the weight of that question. If the laws of our land suddenly changed, and Christianity, that is being a genuine disciple of Christ, if that was suddenly made illegal, would there be enough hard evidence, circumstantial evidence, eyewitness testimony, to first charge you and then to convict you? Would there be? Should there be? Would you want there to be? I want you to have that question in your head because if we look at Daniel 6, there's two really plain points that stick out that are just as true for us today and for God's people now as they were in Daniel's day where that question wasn't a figurative one. <laughs> that was a very literal question they faced. In fact, have a look. If you've got an outline on your way in, have a look at the first two points I've put on your sermon, the outline. They're there for you to, to write some notes under, if you please. Point one is this. God expects his people to live distinguished, and by distinguished, I mean radically different from the world around them. That's point number one. And point two is God expects that even when it's despised, even when it's dangerous, even when it's deadly. God expects his people to live radically different, even when it's despised, even when it's dangerous, even if it would be deadly. Let's have a look at how that first tumbles, how that tumbles out in the text. Pick it up with me in chapter uh, Daniel 6. Following on from chapter 5, we see there's a new king in charge, King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's now got the reins. He's now the big wig in town. And once again, actually, we see that Daniel, Daniel has distinguished himself under this new ruler, under this new empire. He's again given uh, honour and extraordinary responsibility. In fact, have a look. We heard this in, chapter th in verse 3, but read the back end of verse 3 again. Read it with me because Daniel is so distinct in his conduct that what does it say there? 
Have a look at the back end of chapter 3. It says that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel's going to be made like a prime minister. He's like the leader of leaders. And what makes this all the more phenomenal is that, as I've mentioned before, contrary to a lot of the kids' picture books, do you know how old Daniel is at this scene in his life? Do you remember how old he is? He's like pushing 80. That's remarkable. I'm not sure we've got many octogenarians amongst us. Have we got any, have we got any 80 pluses here? Prasanna, your hand should be up. Uh, Coxie, you must be getting close. <laughs> I've got to have those jabs when I can get them in, let's be honest. I think Bev was our only uh, 80 pluser in the, in the morning service. I mean, I feel like if I'm upright at 80, I'll be doing well. But here, Daniel is distinguishing himself among the leaders of leaders. That's phenomenal. At 80 years old? And we should mention it, we should recognise it, but we ought not assume that this is to Daniel's praise and glory. Rather, this is to the praise and glory of God that Daniel is still punching so hard at 80. In fact, if you have a look at verse 3, the NIV sort of kind of flattens this out a little bit. It says that, verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the, the administrators and the satraps by his excellent qualities. Literally speaking, if you've got the ESV or the extra spicy version, um, it will actually make a, a more literal translation of that. It's because there was an excellent spirit in him. And actually that, that is completely consistent with what we've read in chapter 1. From the get-go, we saw that it was God who gave Daniel his superior knowledge. God that gave Daniel his superior understanding, his superior learning. And it's still God's divine favour that sees Daniel thriving in every area of his life, even at 80, because, point one, God expects his people to live radically different from the world, even when they're old. Now, I just want you to stop and reflect on that for a minute. I want us to stop and actually think through that a little bit and the implications for us. Because whether you are a young person here who is a long way from retirement, or whether you're a tired worker looking forward to retirement, or whether you're already retired, think about what the world's message is. What's the word world tell you retirement ought look like? What's the vision of retirement that the world wants you to buy into? Is it not something along the lines of work hard, retire early, and then spend the rest of your life? I mean, you do a quick Google search. Here's a couple of images that come off. Do you notice a theme as, as Prasanna goes through them? What's the, what's the consistent thing? Is that not the Australian dream of retirement? Have enough stored up by retirement age, or earlier if you can, and then use the latter part of your life taking it easy, taking your time taking golf lessons, taking a caravan around the country, just taking it in because now it's you time. That's the message, isn't it? That's the dream, isn't it? Now, I want to acknowledge there's a rightness in taking into consideration some of the limiting factors that come with older age. I mean, I'm only 41 and I'm already slowing up, let's be honest. I got caught by about a 14-year-old girl playing touch footy the other week. Clearly, I'm not as quick as I used to be, not even as quick as I think I am. I was, straight, I was pinning the ears back too. I thought I was through. Through the hole. What? what? <laughs> Gone. <clears throat> so I'm not suggesting that there ought be no consideration or there ought not be a change up in your later years. Yes, of course there ought be. But if you, whether you're already there, my older brothers and sisters, or if you're a long way off, I want to say don't buy into the world's lie that retirement 
is time to clock off and focus on yourself. Don't buy that lie. Don't live for that lie because God expects his people, you included, if you're one of them, to be living radically different from the world, whether you're eight or whether you're 80. And if God is still pleased to be using and empowering Daniel for great things, even in his 80s, then brothers and sisters, let us not aim for less. Be intentional with your time. Be intentional with the unique gifts and experiences that God has given you. He hasn't given them to you for yourself alone, but rather for the glory of his name and the good of his people. There are so many different ways we could apply this. Let me give you one little, let me sharpen one up for you. If you're an older person in our congregation here, grab hold of a younger person, would you? If you're an older married couple, if you've been married for 30 plus years, grab on to a younger married couple. I mean, there's plenty of them. I've married four sets this year already. It'll be five come two weeks' time. There's a few more cold showers and long runs is what I'm suggesting for a couple of these young couples. Um, <clears throat> it's too many weddings. No, that's not true. <laughs> grab on to someone that you can be discipling and maturing and pouring your life into as an older, wiser Christian brother or sister. Don't cruise through your retirement literally or figuratively. But make it count to, for God's glory. That's the legacy I want you to aim at. Dozens of young, can you imagine this? Dozens of younger disciples, more faithless and fearless because of your encouragement in an increasingly hostile world. Aim for that in retirement. When you haven't got kids at home, if you're an empty nester, maybe if you're an older single f a person, not seeing the creation mandate uh, fill the earth and subdue it in that uh, Genesis 2 sense, but the great commission sense of make disciples of all nations, <laughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything. I've commanded you and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. The new creation mandate of which whether you're single or married, you can be part of being the spiritual mothers and fathers of a generation of Christians and disciples of Christ, of Christ who will therefore be likewise disciple makers. That's a legacy worth living for. That's a legacy worth dying with. And it's not just for the older people I want to sharpen one up for. If you're a younger person or a younger couple, don't wait for the older folk to tap you on the shoulder latch on to those older wiser christians amongst us like a tick or a leech or a loving parasite of your choosing take in what they've got to offer ask them to walk alongside you uh, through the ups and downs the peaks and troughs of life the, the chances are they've been there before they may have traversed that terrain they might be able to show you the way to keep your eyes fixed on jesus as you go up and down Friends, isn't that a radically different way to live as Christians that is so tragically distinct from the world around us? Retirees still looking to impact the lives of younger people as they pour themselves out for the glory of God, for the building of his kingdom. Younger people actually honouring and respecting and cherishing the God-given gifts and experiences of our younger brethren. Isn't that radically different from the way the world tells you to consider each other? And I want to say, brothers and sisters, let me say, don't wait for a church program to prompt you on that. Don't wait for a structure to be built where there's a, I'm going to match up these flank with that. No, don't wait for that. Make it happen. 
Because God expects his people, you included, to live radically different from the world your whole life. It's the first point I want you to see from the text. And the second point I want you to see really only takes it up a notch further. Because God isn't just calling us and his people to live radically different whether we're young or old. He's calling us to live this way whether it's despised, dangerous, even deadly. Now if you know the story of Daniel 6, you've heard it and you've seen it uh, acted up here before. You'll know this is true in that story. We, we heard the other administrators, the, uh, the provincial leaders called satraps. They were clearly very jealous of Daniel, threatened by his favoured status in the empire under Darius. And so we read in verse 4, in fact, have a look at it there. What did they do? They tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct and government affairs, but they were unable to do so. In fact, the text will state explicitly that he was neither corrupt nor negligent. He was trustworthy in all things. And that was a problem to him. What are they going to do about that? How are they going to neutralize this perceived threat from Daniel? I suppose they could stop being corrupt or negligent. It's an option. No, 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 that's not the one they go with. Have a look at the second half of verse 5. No, they say, we'll not find any basis for charge against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And that's their play. That's what they aim for. And you heard it and you saw it played out here. They petition the king, they stroke his ego, and they manipulate him into making a royal decree outlawing prayer to anyone but King Darius for 30 days. It's a funny, strange irony when you look at it again, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it quite ironic that at the, same very, at the very same time, this king who's trying to flex his power and authority over all people is being totally controlled and manipulated by his subordinates? You see the strange irony going on there? What's Daniel going to do about this? What's going to be Daniel's response to this new law? He heard about it. What's he going to do when the government outlaws prayer? We'll read verse 10. This is what he does. Now Daniel, when he learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his, up, uh, to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. What does Daniel do? Nothing different. Nothing different. He, he continued as he had done for the last 60 plus years in exile. He got down on his knees regularly and prayed. In fact, I wonder, we'll see this actually in chapter 9, that clearly uh, Daniel is reading some form of Old Testament prophets. He's reading from Jeremiah in chapter 9. I think he's got King Solomon's prayer in the back of his head as he, as he faces Jerusalem. Have a look at 1 Kings 8.48. Write it down and look at it in your own time. Have, I think he's got this prayer in the back of his mind as Solomon dedicates the temple... And he, he, he foresees a time when people will be exiled and away and encourages them to pray towards Jerusalem as a means of remembering God's covenantal promises. I think, I think Daniel's got that in the back of his head as he does this. And so physically, he, he turns his eyes towards Jerusalem, the physical reminder of God's covenantal promises, though it lies in ruins. He turns his eyes that way, but at the same time, he turns his attention and he turns his trust and he turns his affection to the God of the universe and he gives thanks to that God. That's an amazing thing to be doing at this point in time. This is a serious threat to his existence and yet he finds it fit and he finds it able to, he himself able to sit down or kneel down and pray thanks to God. 
And why does he do this? How can he do this? I'll tell you why, because he's convinced of those first two points on your outline. Daniel knows that God expects his people to live radically different to the world around them, regardless of age, and he knows that that expectation doesn't change even when it's despised, dangerous, and deadly. I mean, can you imagine, seriously imagine, how many of the exiles are living like Daniel at this point in Babylon? How many of the exiles have just forgotten the ways of the God of Israel? How many of them do you imagine at this point have been completely absorbed in the the customs and the culture of Babylon to the point where nobody could tell the difference? 60 plus years, that's time enough to lose your accent. Time enough to lose, lose your dress sense. Time enough to lose everything that made you distinct when you were in Israel. But Daniel here is working out of what I want to call a holy habit of consistent prayer because he's kept doing it for 60 years. He hasn't taken his eyes off Yahweh. And I think it's really important to notice, actually, when he prays, when he goes, when he hears the decree and he goes into his room to pray, he's not grandstanding, all right? He's not, sort of, he's not doing this to stick it to the man, you know? He's not organizing protest marches and writing to his local member and writing placards. No, he's doing what he always has done because he knows the authority and therefore the allegiance in his life. He knows the order of those things. And so he sticks with it regardless of the consequences, however severe, and in this case, as severe as it can get. Because you know from the story that it's not just that maintaining his Godward allegiance, it's not just that he's going to be despised, though he is, and it's not just dangerous, though it was, it's because it was deadly. Anyone who defied the royal decree of praying to anyone other than Darius would be thrown to the lion's den. Daniel knows it, seemingly okay with that. <laughs> now, I find this really odd. In fact, did you, did you notice here, nowhere is it recorded that Daniel jumped up and down and cry, cried foul. Uh, clearly, it's a stitch-up, but nowhere is it recorded that he tried to defend himself or that he tried to deflect the accusations or, or try to point out the malicious intent behind them. Nowhere did he do that. Not until after the event of his miraculous deliverance. Did you see that? In fact, have a look. It's not until after the event that Daniel vindicates his actions and says to the king, I didn't do anything wrong. That's what... In fact, have a look at verse 21. Verse 21, as King Darius goes to see and check on Daniel the next morning. Isn't it again ironic that it's Darius that spends all night worrying up, (laughs) concerned? But when he goes to check on Daniel in the morning and he finds him alive, Daniel says, verse 21, read it with me. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels to shut the mouth of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. Do you hear that? It's only after the event of injustice. It's only after he suffered the penalty and the punishment that actually Daniel speaks up against his unfair treatment. Something weird about that, folks, isn't there? Something that's strangely synonymous when you look at Mark 15 and the trial of Jesus before Pilate, silent before his accusers. In fact, I'll draw some parallel, maybe I won't, we'll see. Keep that in the back of your mind, it's worthwhile checking out later on. There's something in this that we need to see though, there's something we need to come to grips with, I think, here. Because it seems to me that Daniel is operating on some sort of a mental or emotional or spiritual plane that is just not natural. He has this confidence and this conviction. I want to say this only God can give. 
In fact, I reckon Daniel's response in this situation is the Old Testament equivalent to what Paul was driving out in the New Testament when he writes to Timothy and says this. In fact, have a look at it. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 10. Paul's giving Timothy this charge. He says, You, however, know all of my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me uh, in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra? The persecution I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, get this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think Daniel is operating out of the same understanding as Paul is writing to Timothy. Because here, Paul, like Daniel, is convinced of those first two points on our sermon outline. And so Paul writes to Timothy, and to, as a, uh, by extension to us, to you people sitting here right now, he writes to prepare us for the inevitable reality of suffering and persecution for anyone who's seeking to honour God above all else. Now that is a strange, scary thing to consider, isn't it, folks? Persecution and suffering for Christians ought be the expectation and the norm. Have you come to terms with that personally? Have you, have you realised and reconciled this fact that if you genuinely seek to live as a disciple of Christ in this world, that you ought expect a level of persecution? Have you realised that? And I'm not talking about persecution because you're a jerk, by the way. Let me make a bit of a distinction here. Because you, you can go all Westboro Baptist Church, if you don't know who those guys are, wowzers, trousers. I mean, you could go start picketing funerals and using profanities and telling everyone in earshot they're going to hell because God hates them. That's not the Christian gospel. <laughs> no matter how many times you invoke Jesus' name while doing so. And so if you're getting a bad reaction from people because you're just an insensitive horror head, that's not the persecution Daniel suffered here. Nor is it the persecution Paul is talking about here. Rather, though, if you maintain biblical truth about God's intention for human flourishing, or if you reject the notion of personal and relative truth as a fanciful nonsense that is inconsistent and unlivable, essentially, if you hold up and hold out Jesus' own exclusive claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, if you speak and think and act like that, and you should, then you ought fully anticipate that the world will not love you for it. In fact, Jesus says that explicitly in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Friends, you ought expect that the cultural and popular opinion will not welcome a Christian view, much less thank you for it. Rather, you should expect to be marginalized and mistreated. You do, you do understand that, don't you? And now I'm not a prophet in the sense that I can accurately predict the future, although I do see a win for the dragons coming up shortly. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think you need to be a prophet to say that, practically speaking, what we should expect in this space is increasing numbers of Christians who will lose their jobs, who will lose their reputations, who will lose their livelihoods, who will lose their freedom to jailhouses, possibly even lose their lives to violence if they maintain their allegiance to Jesus and the exclusivity of the Christian gospel that bears witness to him. We ought to expect that here. That is already happening in other parts of the world. 
one of the other organizations we support as a church as mission partners is the voice of the martyrs if you've ever gone on that site, it's about persecuted Christians around that. This sort of stuff is already happening elsewhere. Do you think it will not come closer to us? On the current trajectory of our culture, that reality might be closer than you think. And the other thing I want to say, folks, loaded onto that, is know in advance that the persecution that you suffer for being a Christian, it will not be fair. Do you understand what I mean by that? It will not be fair. If you follow Daniel's example, or better still, Jesus' example... The persecution you can expect will be unjust, trumped up, charges that lead to persecution, and they are just unfair. Add it to that. Add to that more again. You shouldn't even expect vindication or justice immediately in this life. You might think, well, Sister Tim, you're really not selling Christianity for me here. Come on and lose your life to Christ. You're going to be persecuted and you may not see justice in this life. But I say this because I want to be aware and ready for this. And I want you to be aware and ready for this. And what's the only way to be ready and aware for this? It's point through in your outline. It's by looking to Jesus. Friends, know this. Jesus did nothing less than this. Living a radically different life to his world for the glory and honor of his father. Even when he was despised. Even when it was dangerous. Even when it was ultimately deadly. And because of this, I want to say Jesus is both then our example to follow and our ultimate assurance that doing likewise, living radically different for God's glory is the only sensible way to live in life. And why is that? How can I say that? How can that be true? I tell you, it's because in Jesus, God has given you proof that there is something better than life and something worse than death. Do you get that? Write that down. Let me say it again slightly differently so you pick up what I'm putting down. If you know the truth about Jesus, then you will realize there is something much better to come than anything this life could offer you. And at the same time, there is something far worse than death and dying. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you know that that is central to the gospel message itself? You see, Daniel saw and accepted this from a distance with his eyes fixed on God alone. He was convinced that to dishonor God was worse than death and that there was something more glorious in God than life had to offer. And so he was willing to face the lion's den. And friends, you and I have only more reason to be convinced that is so because of Jesus who suffered death and rose to new life. In fact, this is where I'd love to, but for time's sake, I won't. So write down Mark 15, 1 to 15. Check that out. Compare the, the stories and the trials of Daniel and Jesus. Notice the similarities, the trumped-up charges, the false accusers, the silence before the uh, tribunal, the supposed ruler who knows that he should set him free, but really, because of self-preservation, fails to do so. The turning them over to the, to the, to the, uh, to the punishment, the stone being rolled in front And yet here's where we see the differences of the fate of Daniel and the fate of us because of Jesus. In Daniel 6, God saves Daniel from death. And as Steve mentioned in his intro, in Jesus, God saves us through death. It's a big difference, isn't it? The stone went over the, the lion's den and Daniel came out unharmed. 
Un, he, he, didn't, he didn't die, saved from death. Jesus died, went into that tomb, the stone came over and he rose from the dead. Friends, this is the good news and the true hope of the Christian gospel of Jesus. It's not, not that God will save you from persecution. It's not that God must save you from suffering. It's not that God guarantees you a long life and a far-off, distant, peaceful death in your bed at age 101, though terrific if it happens that way. Rather, this is the hope and the promise of God. It's that because of Jesus' life and death in your stead, he will save you through persecution. He will save you despite suffering. He will even save you through death. It's why Paul writes with such conviction to the church in Philippi when he says, Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I'd want to dig more into this, but we're actually going to the book of Philippians after Daniel, so I'm going to save some ammunition then. But essentially, it is the take-home message I want you to see from Daniel 6. Like Daniel, your life is not your own. It's given to you by God to live for God. And for us as Christians on this side of the cross, we do this by seeking to honour Jesus and trusting him above all else. To live is Christ. What does that look like? What will that look like in your life this week? Whether you're old or young, whether you're studying, whether you're working, whether you're retired, what ought that look like and what will be the cost to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you? One of the things Steve McAlpine says at the end of his book is that if we're going to be the labelled the bad guys, then from now on, let's be the most loving, compassionate, empathetic, selfless, joy-filled bad guys you can imagine. Be the best bad guy you can be. Be the best bad guy you can be to the glory of God, to the honour of Christ Jesus, for the sake of salvation to those who will believe and to the shame of those who would deny and accuse us of otherwise friends you'll need to put some more thought into that you need to put a bit more meat on the bones there i want to encourage you to think about how do you be the best darn good bad guy you can be as a christian but know this know this beyond knowing that whatever the cost even up to and including death because of jesus gain steve's going to come up and lead us in prayer as we wrap up and then we're going to sing a song afterwards that can much be uh, can be sung as a prayer. It's no other name but Jesus.